Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. I'd love to invite you to turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We are continuing our walk through the letter of James, which we should actually call the Sermon of James, because that's what it is. It's an ancient sermon written to the earliest church. And like many sermons, James, we think, have three major points. What we could call woes, wisdom, and love. And James introduced each of these questions, each of these topics in chapter 1. And now we begin his deep dive into each of these subjects. And we begin this morning with wealth and the world's value system more accurately. So I'll read and you can follow along. Again, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. This is God's word. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and the poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, May my words and my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. And Lord, we need you to open our hearts to your presence right now. Your glory presence. We need this very morning to experience what it is like to be deeply seen by you and yet deeply secure and loved in those same 
eyes. Lord, reveal all of that to us now in Jesus, to whom all Scripture leads us, and we ask this in His name. Amen. Well, so every often, every so often, I walk up to my porch or I drive up to my house and I see on my porch an Amazon package sitting there. And I don't know if you can relate to me, uh, but when I see that brown box just waiting for you, it's very similar to that feeling that I had, you know, on my birthday or on Christmas morning or when you were a kid. Your heart sort of just gets excited. There's an anticipation there. And so I walk to the package, I pick it up, and then I look at the name on that package. (laughs) And I notice it's not for me. And so what do I do? I kind of toss the package on the ground again. At best, I I bring it in uh, to the house and throw it on the couch. Joseph's like, where's that package? I don't know. (laughs) See, my anticipation in that moment turned into disappointment. And I became really an emotional toddler in that moment on Christmas morning. (laughs) Why? It wasn't for me. That's why. And when I see that nothing about that benefits me personally, that I don't get anything out of it at all, I throw it aside, I cast it off. And this is just, I guess, one example of what we could call what's in it for me-ism. And while it's pretty harmless with Amazon packages, sadly, what's in it for me-ism shows up not just with packages, but with people. With people. If you're in a home group right now, you know we're talking about how easy it is to love our neighbor when that neighbor is just like you. And especially when we gain something from that relationship. But what about when that neighbor is not a gain, but we'll say a drain in your life? That's hard. When the the Amazon package effect starts to trigger in those moments. We leave those people on the porch. Is what we do. Because we don't get anything out of it. James has a word for this in verse 1 of chapter 2. Partiality. So the Greek word here behind this word partiality is actually very helpful. It's a word picture meaning to receive someone according to their face. That's what that word means. To receive someone according to their face. And some translate this very word as favoritism. It's whenever you value a human being according to something on their surface. It's treating a human made in the image of God no different than a package on a porch. We look at them, we assess what's in it for me, and then we value them accordingly, and then we treat them And James illustrates this dynamic in verses 2 and 3 with a sort of Jesus-like parable. Two men walk into a church, which is the beginning of a bad joke, probably, sounds like. (laughs) The first guy is wearing, what? A gold ring and fine clothes. The second guy is wearing 
what's described as shabby clothing. In the Greek, it's a bit more evocative than this, so I want to sort of uh, go there. So the first guy is described as literally gold-fingered. The gold finger, so Mr. Goldfingers, we'll call him, walks in. And this is significant, okay? This is significant because gold rings in those days meant that you were a part of the equestrian class. And last week I talked about an equestrian class that I took in college, totally different. This is not a class that you take. This is a social class in the Roman Empire. The equestrian class meant you had money. The equestrian class meant you had connections, you had upward mobility. Your LinkedIn was like very long <laughs> and impressive. And one more thing, our text says his clothes are fine, fine clothing, which is true. But literally, James says his clothes are shiny. They're shiny. So think about this for a minute. In walks a man who is shiny. According to the world. His wealth is shining. His job connections are shining. His status is shining. You might benefit by treating this man well. Is the thought. The what's in it for me factor. Potential. Is 10 out of 10. Okay, so compare this shining man to the other man who walks in. He has no shine. His clothes are not shining. They are described in this text by James as shabby. The opposite of shiny. And this man doesn't have gold on his fingers, but he's called, what is it? Look down. He's called poor. This is an extreme word. Which means he has nothing. So he doesn't have gold on his fingers. He has nothing on his fingers. And in fact, he has nothing in his fingers to offer you. Literally and figuratively. No connections. No upward mobility. And so the church, according to James here, is following the world's script. They're not being, as Paul says in Romans, they're, they're not being sort of uh, non-conforming. Non, uh, to the world, Paul says, do not be conformed to the world. So they're not doing that. They are actually quite in lockstep with the world at this moment. Because what are they doing? They're rolling the red carpet out for Mr. Goldfingers, but they shun the poor man. And we could ask, why? Because they stood to gain something from the connected man. And so they, as James puts it here in verse 30, they pay attention to you. They pay attention. Where's their attention? Sorry. James says this is partiality or favoritism when you're favoring someone or receiving someone, again, according to their face, their presentation. You're treating these people like packages. You're asking what's in it for me. And then you're treating them accordingly. And I wish this was an ancient problem. <laughs> I really do, but it's still alive. We tend to divide people into shining and shabby. Into sort of gainers and drainers.
Well, James doesn't mince words. He calls this favoritism in verse 4. Take a look. Evil. When you receive someone like you would receive a package, according to their face, according to how they look, according to what they can give you in life, you are dehumanizing them. You are um, defacing their inherent dignity as image bearers of God. Classism, rankism, racism, ethnocentrism, any ism, what's in it for me ism, where you are rejecting or denigrating someone's inherent dignity as an image bearer of their maker and your maker, especially in the house of God, is pure evil, according to James. And James will unpack in this passage why it is evil, but James also gives us a way forward. He doesn't just call the church out. He offers a better way. He wants the church to, what's he say in verse 1? To hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He wants us to hold on to Jesus without favoritism. The question he's asking in verse 1 is, how can you hold both? How can you hold on to Jesus and hang on to this sort of way of the world? How can you do both? What James wants for us, what James wants for this ancient church, is for us to hang on to Jesus and Him alone. I sometimes ski in the summers, and when you're gripping the handle of that tow rope, you literally cannot hold on to anything else. When you feel that tug, you cannot hang on to anything else. And that's an image I want to keep you to keep with yourself. The same is true with Jesus. When you hold on to Jesus... When you feel his tug in discipleship, you lose ability, according to James, to hang on to favoritism. It just can't persist. We love the both and at hope. This is an example of the either or. Jesus and favoritism don't mix. And James wants us to experience the liberty of this. This is liberty. This is what I'll call the liberty of neighbor love. He wants us free from any ism that goes against that law of liberty. And to do this, he does two things. As I mentioned, he sort of wants us to see first the problem, the, the serious problem of partiality. And then he wants us to embrace the answer. So that's going to be how we work through this text together this morning. We first must embrace the problem the problem of partiality. And this may seem obvious. Why spend time on this? But James thinks it's not obvious, and he actually spends a lot of time on this. He spends actually most of his time in this text we just read unpacking the profound problem that is partiality. And this is going to be important for us because in our cultural moment, we take this for granted. We sort of are like, okay, yeah, partiality and favoritism and Racism and any kind of ism that does this is bad. We sort of take that for granted, but I, I wonder how many of us can answer why is it bad. I think it's possible that we have been sort of simmering in the countercultural teachings of Jesus for millennia so that we take for granted this vision. Favoritism is evil. You have to understand in James' original context that that, that was a countercultural claim. Again, 
The whole, the whole society was built on the idea that the rich and the connected have honor and the poor have shame. That was how their culture was built. And so when James echoes Jesus in this sermon, what he's saying is quite, quite, quite countercultural. And we miss this. And it might be important for us to give, uh, to give some time to answering why it is bad. We assume it, but do we know why? James is going to give us three reasons about the problem of partiality. And number one is this. It goes against the heart of God. James makes this point starting in verse 5. If you listen along, I'll read again. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. God is honoring the poor man, and you are, as God's people, dishonoring the poor man. What's going on here? James is giving us a window into the very heart of God. James says, look around. This is James' like one-point sermon. Look around. Look at your church directory, James says. Who has God chosen as his people, his possession, his heirs, his beloved, those who are poor in the world, it says. The have-nots. Now certainly there are exceptions, even in the New Testament. But when you take the 30,000 foot view across scripture and across history... Most of God's people are like the second man walking into the church, not the first. And James wants to connect this fact on the ground with the very heartbeat of God. In a fallen world that honors wealth and prestige and celebrity, God honors the poor. So, when we do what verse 6 says, Dishonoring the poor man. We are going against God's very heart. If a parent uh, tells their kids to do something because I told you so, it isn't very effective. <coughs> but if that same parent in tears says to their child, this breaks my heart. It at least grabs a child's attention. And that's what God is doing in verse 5. He is saying favoritism is not just bad. It breaks my heart. It goes against God's heart. Second reason James gives for us here is that it goes against God's people. As well. So, this is James' point in verses 6 and 7. If we continue reading, I'll read along. Please follow. But you have dishonored the poor man, it says in verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name, that's Jesus, by which you are called? In those days, Christian was sort of a 
blasphemous word that people would put on Christ's followers. Apparently, there were wealthy landowners who were oppressing people in James' church by not paying their wages, by taking them to court. Later in the text, he even uses the word murder. So some scholars think that this either directly or even indirectly took lives, whether indirectly, whether by taking their wages away from them and starvation or other means. This was sort of a socioeconomic religious injustice that James was pastoring the church through. And James says this is nothing short of blasphemy against Jesus. Jesus so identifies with his people that when his people are persecuted, so is Jesus. What does Saul, the persecutor of God's people, hear from Jesus? Why are you persecuting the church? No, Saul, why are you persecuting me, Jesus says. That's that's the identification of Jesus with his people. But for some reason, the same people of God, the people of Jesus that were being persecuted by the power brokers of that day... We're rolling out the red carpet for the power broker in their church. And when you're, James is making this point, when you're doing this, you're acting like your oppressor. You're taking on his script, the script of the world. And you're living in light of the world's caste system that Jesus turned upside down. It goes against God's people. And then it goes against James's final point here, God's law. And that's James' burden in verses 8 through really the end of our passage. The congregation was largely Jewish, remember. And so they had a very high view of God's law. So James helps them see how their favoritism goes against God's law. They would not want to understand themselves as going against God's law. So James pastors them in this way by preaching a small sermon on two little verses from, you guessed it, God's law. Two passages from Leviticus. I know all you drop off your Bible reading plans around Leviticus, so I'll refresh your memory. <laughs> Leviticus 19.15 and Leviticus 19.18. Two verses that really are sort of unpacked here. Verse 15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, in justice, you shall judge your neighbor. That's Leviticus 19, 15. In this first section that we just talked about, about partiality, I really think it's James' commentary on this verse. Because just three verses after, in Leviticus, we see another commentary on another verse that you might have heard before. Leviticus 19.18 reads this way. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For I am your Lord. So James is going to preach a bit on this. After all, it's Jesus, his brother, who elevates this, what was obscure in his time, text. 
Jesus elevates to summarize the entire second tablet of the law. How we love one another. How we treat one another in horizontal relationships. The law is summarized according to King Jesus as this. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And so let's read again what James says in the commentary of this verse. If you really fulfill the royal law. Royal law. Because again, King Jesus said... King, royalty, said that this summarizes the law when it comes to our horizontal relationships. If you do this, James says, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Thumbs up. Yes. That's good. Yes, that's good. Really good, James says. Verse 9. But when you're shown partiality, no go. You're breaking that wall. And this is no small thing. In fact, I see this entire passage as sort of an effort for James to show them and to show us the real severity of favoritism according to God's law. James really needs to impress on them the severity of this. Because they were probably saying, Pastor James, I'm only breaking one little obscure law in Leviticus. Okay? It's not like I'm murdering anybody. This reminds me actually of a phrase that Jerry Bridges uses called respectable sins. Uh, We comfort ourselves without the gospel often by saying, this is a respectable sin. And we don't say that, but that's how our heart attitude views the issue. But James says, no, actually, partiality is worse than you realize. In three, well, in three ways. Number one is bigger than you think, the issue. James wants us to see that when you break one little law, you break the entire law. That's the first point that James gives us here. One writer compares the breaking the law of God as glass shattering versus you're not taking a brick out of this wall. It's like the whole thing is shattered. So it's bigger than you think. It's all connected. Number two, it's more personal than you think. Did you notice how personal things were when James was talking about the wall? For it says here in verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, for he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. You see, we're not just breaking some impersonal rule with favoritism and partiality. We're going against the lawgiver who is God himself. And this connects to breaking his heart, as we said earlier. All sin, in other words, is personal. It's not theoretical. It's relational. David prays against you, not it. Against you and you only have I sinned. Not it and it only have I sinned. And so it's personal. It's more personal than you think. But then thirdly, it's, it's actually worse than you think. So why does James pick these two commandments out? Murder and adultery. Is he just being random? Picking a couple out of the Ten Commandments? I don't think so. I don't, I don't actually think so. Because it seems to me that he is comparing favoritism to the heart of murder. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, 
do not murder. Like Jesus, Jesus, when talking about this commandment, took it to the heart. Because what is murder? It's a profound violation of the dignity of a human being in their life, in their value. It's defacing and devaluing an imago Dei human because they don't give you anything in return or they stand against you in some way that you want removed. That's sort of the heart of it. And James is saying when you diminish a poor person because they can't give you anything in life, it's not murder per se, but it's murder rust. Do you see it? Do you see the connection? The Westminster Confession is one of our statements of belief as a church. It's actually really helpful on the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not murder. I'll just read it. And as I do, consider the two men in James's chapter 2. Just consider them. Keep them in your mind. And then consider even all the issues of our day as well. It asks, what are the positive duties of the law against murder? Quote, the duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all manner of careful efforts and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of any life. This includes the following. The just defense of lives against violence. Patiently bearing the hand of God with quietness of mind and cheerfulness of spirit. Sober use of food, drink, medicine, sleep, labor, and recreations. Charitable, charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, and kindness. Peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior. Forbearance, readiness to be reconciled. Patient, bearing, and forgiving of injuries, returning good for evil. And comforting and supporting the distressed. And protecting and defending the innocent. Jesus, okay, showed us that the law against murder forbids any and all devaluing of other image bearers. Jesus' brother wants us to include favoritism on the list. That is what it is. And this is James' first goal. When we embrace the profound problem of partialism, we need to see it for what it is. It's going against God in every way. His heart, His people, and His law. So whenever I go to the airport and rent a car and count on one hand, there are always those tire spikes that go in one direction but not the other. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's how they keep people from, I don't know what. <laughs> Stealing the car? Aren't they renting it? I don't know. Going in the wrong direction, let's say. Okay? Going in the wrong direction. So if they drive over them in the correct direction, wonderful. But if they go in the opposite direction, I don't even want to know what happens, but I imagine some stuff starts to shred and fall apart. It causes destruction. And that's how I want us to view favoritism. It's going against the grain of the universe. It's going against how God made the world. It's going against God's very own heart. It shreds. It tears apart. It destroys. And he's calling us to a better way, which is embracing the answer to partiality. See, we have to do more than just embracing the problem. 
If we just embrace the problem, we might leave this place this morning and be like, okay, don't be, don't be partial. Don't be partial, Joe. Don't be partial. Don't do that. Don't do it anymore. Don't do it anymore. Or you might say, yeah, pretty good. And you might walk away feeling awesome. We have to see and embrace the answer. It's, it's not us. It's not us. James shows us the answer. It's not a proposition. It's, it's certainly not a process, but it's a person. We embrace, as I said, or we hold on to who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. First of all, His glory answers our partiality. In verse 1, there is a little translation debate. Should Jesus be Lord of glory, which is what my translation says, or should Jesus be the Lord who is glory? You might be thinking, what's the difference? I think there is a difference, and I think it should be the latter. The Lord who is the glory. And here's why. Because Jewish men and women all knew what glory meant. It was the localized presence of God. At the tabernacle and at the temple, the God got local. He was present. And there was what? Glory. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So James is making a very provocative point this morning. He's saying that Jesus is that glory on full display amongst God's people on Sunday morning. He is the presence of God in flesh and by the Spirit. And here's the thing about Jesus. True glory. The bright, shining, Shekinah glory wore shabby clothes. In fact, I get the sense that James is implying to us that the glorious Lord himself could very well be that second man. The glory walks in. And in honoring the man with worldly shining clothes, we usher the true glory out the door. They're ushering out Jesus. They're ushering out glory. Ebenezer. Glory has left the temple when we show favoritism. Because Jesus' true glory is among the poor. The shining one wore shabby clothes. What a reversal. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus was God, but he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, guess what? He humbled himself even deeper to obedience to God so that he would die a criminal's death on a cross, though innocent. Therefore, what did God do? God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. His glory answers our partiality. And second, his mercy answers our partiality. It's his mercy. Look how James puts it in verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy 
to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So James is saying, speak and act, do everything as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now notice, he does not say the law of condemnation or slavery. He just proved to us that we were condemned under the law. That was like point one of the sermon, everybody, in case you missed it. But he calls it the law of liberty because he knows the glorious one changed it all. Jesus changed it all. We're still to live in light of the law of God. We're still called to love God and love neighbor. But no longer does it condemn us, the law. Why? Because Jesus lived it, embodied it, obeyed it perfectly. And because on the cross, Jesus absorbed the law-breaking punishment on our behalf, what we deserve. All of our partiality, all of our favoritism, every sort of uh, wiggling out feeling that we had when James was sort of unpacking what the problem of favoritism, all of that, if you're in Christ, was nailed to the cross. It was punished on the cross that day. And so now the law of neighbor love is no longer a crushing, like condemning law, but it is what James calls it, a law of liberty. It is a summons to freedom, to true freedom, a life of outpouring love, of God and of neighbor. How does James put it? Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the cross of Jesus in four words. I love what Alec Motier says, quote, I'll just quote him, in the cross of Christ, justice was fully done. It, the claims of the cross were fully met. And God's mercy to sinners triumphed. In the provision of complete forgiveness and full salvation. Therefore, even before the judgment seat, mercy wins the day. Judgment looks at our deserts, what we deserve. Mercy at our needs. And God himself looks at the cross of the Son. This triumphing mercy... The word here, actually, with triumph, is sort of what, I guess, boxers do when they knock somebody out. They sort of do this, and they taunt the person. It's sort of what the NCAA penalizes when somebody tackles somebody. You know what I'm talking about? Excessive celebration or something, or taunting, I guess. That, that's the word. Okay, so what is James saying? He's saying that mercy taunts. Hallelujah says, crows over. Judgment on the cross. And this triumphing mercy alone will motivate us to love others well, or nothing more. Mercy looks at what we need, remember? Judgment looks at what we deserve. When someone walks in with need, and we're withholding it, or somehow patronizing, oh, let me fill your need, 
We don't really understand the cross. That's James's point. What if we get to the end of our story and we were never merciful? Because according to James, it meant that we never tasted mercy. And it means that we receive judgment of God without mercy. It's not enough to know that it profoundly grieves God, favoritism. That doesn't empower us to love well. We must also know that God poured out his mercy to us on the cross of judgment. And James expects his church and he expects you and me to see this profound mercy afresh on the cross this morning, which will make you merciful. Live by mercy. That's James' whole sermon in a word. Live by mercy. Live by it because you received it. The other day, here at the close, I was reflecting on my dad's final years. And he kickstarted something in his church called Stephen's Ministry, which is just, I have to say, so unlike my dad. In his final years battling cancer, he kickstarted a ministry of mercy in his church. And as I said, that was unlike him. The dad sort of that I grew up with. And then all of a sudden, that same dad became more merciful and generous in his soul. And I just want to say, it wasn't because he was fearing God and he wanted to settle the score of God as if he could. It's because he tasted profound mercy and generosity from God himself. The same is true for us. We will become a merciful community of Jesus to the extent that we see the glory of Jesus in this space and the mercy of Jesus in this space. So Lord, make us so. Lord, make us so. And ask Lord that we would Look at ourselves as you do. On the one hand, Lord, we are miserable sinners who fail to love well. We violate the sixth commandment. At church, no less. We're spiritually poor and poor in faith. And yet, Lord, your mercy has triumphed over judgment on the cross. You see our need and you know it by grace. And by grace alone. We are, we are profound recipients of your mercy. Lord, would you fuel us in a life of costly neighborhood? Lord, would you allow us to look at others as you do? As image bearers with dignity and in Christ as believers. So Lord, would we as a community and as individuals look more and more like you, Jesus? True glory is one. True glory is upside down. It's a journey to Washington. Not to the top of the mountain. Lord, as you washed our feet, we'll be washed ours. We pray with Jesus. Amen. 
Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.